0: Bibles to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 34, kind of a big chunk that we're going to read here on the front end, and then we're going to spend our time looking at this, these two, uh, two little snapshots and stories once again as Jesus is in Jerusalem making his way to his cross. And so if you've got that, we're going to begin in verse 18, and then we're going to pray. The Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures, nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You truly have said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings In sacrifices, and when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, "You are not far from the kingdom of God." And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I'd echo the prayers that have already been prayed and sung. We. We come humbly to your word. We as Christians and believers can, can be so prone to just assuming that we know because we've been around it, because we read it, because we've seen it, because we heard it, and we can miss, we can miss Christ. We can miss the things that are most important. And so Lord, we come to you humble today and we, we say, Lord, teach us, we say, guide us, we say, Jesus please show us yourself that we could we could have true faith and truly believe and truly follow you. And so give us humble hearts and by your spirit give us ears to hear and receive your words. Amen. Amen. Well in the world of flight and piloting which I don't know a lot about I'm not a pilot But they—I've come to learn—they have what is called the the one in sixty rule, and it's a a rule of thumb for navigation, which helps keep pilots on track and it helps them correct their bearings if they fall off the path. And so the one in sixty is basically a mathematical equation, which basically means if a pilot starts and they head one degree off the correct tracking or flight path. The plane, after it's flown 60 miles, will be one mile off where its destination should be. And so the pilot is able to then use that and do some mathematics. I watched the YouTube video and I got very confused very fast. <laughs> and, uh, but they figure out how they can course correct and get back on where their destination should be. But as I, as I pondered that, I was just amazed. Just one degree, one tiny little degree will get you very far off your destination. Your starting point must be right and you must stay on course in that right direction. And a pilot could have, have all, his, all his instrumentation and everything gauges before him and yet still miss his mark drastically. Your starting point must be accurate and you must have right understanding in reading those instruments and if not, the difference is very much either being very right or very wrong. And as we come to our text this morning, we, we come to two stories, these two interactions we just read with two different groups, these two religious groups being represented, and they're both trying to get it right. Some are trying to be justified by what they think is right, and others are trying to be right before God. And Jesus's response to them sort of undoes and shows him that he, he is the one that is ultimately the determiner, the interpreter of what is right. He is the one, even with guys who have all the religious stuff around them, surrounded by all the right information and data, if they foundationally don't have the right starting point and the gauge to understand where they should go, they'll totally miss the mark. And so Jesus comes again and he shows us that he is, he is the Son of God, with authority. He is the one who both fulfills and is able to interpret God's word and prove he is Messiah. So we're going to look at both of these these stories separately. And we begin with this group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees now come to Jesus. In our last sermon in Mark, there was another group represented. It was the Pharisees and another group, the Herodians, that came to him and during this, these days, there were really two main uh, religious group influences and in sects. There was the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were they varied. The, the, the Pharisees were more progressive in uh, what their beliefs. The Sadducees were much more conservative. There were theological differences. Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not. Uh, the, the Pharisees held to the Torah, which is the written scriptures of the Old Testament. And they also broadly held to what was called the oral traditions and laws, which was laws that, helped ex- that were trying to be interpretive and in expanding of those, those written uh, scriptures. And the Sadducees only held to the written scriptures of the Torah. Another thing is that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, a bodily resurrection, and some future world that transformed, that God would, would create. In contrast, the Sadducees did not believe at all in a resurrection. So here is sort of the debate. The Sadducees look at the Old Testament and they really see nothing about an afterlife and a resurrection, so conclude it doesn't happen. So now they approach Jesus with their question to prove that they are right and in some way show Jesus to be unlearned and foolish. And the question reads very, very silly and goofy. It's almost like that... That questions skeptics pose to Christians, like if God created a, can God create a rock too heavy that He cannot lift? Well, it's a, it's a silly question, and they come with this question that relates to an Old Testament marriage law found in Deuteronomy 25, and it basically sets, states that if a man a man is obligated to marry his brother's wife who's widowed and if she has no children. So that he could continue the inheritance of that family, that, uh, that provision of that family, that family name would continue, and it, would be, it was meant to be protective and helpful for the sustaining of that family. And so they come and they ask, what happens if there were seven successive marriages? And if this woman married all seven of these men, who would she be married to when they're, they're in heaven? But it's kind of goofy because they don't believe in a resurrection, and so why does it matter? It, it seems to them that it's it's foolish, it's kind of hocus pocus, it's superstition, and they want to make Jesus look foolish in their question. And of course, Jesus sees through it all, and we have these three words: "You are wrong." <laughs> you are wrong. The Greek word has this idea of you have wandered off track. You have been led astray. And he tells them the two reasons they are led astray. They don't understand the scriptures. They don't know them. They can't get the scriptures right, which is crazy because these guys are experts. I mean, it's like telling a, neuro, a neurosurgeon, like, you know nothing about the brain. It's basically what he's doing. And they don't know and understand anything about the power of God. So then he addresses both of those errors that they have with two situations. He tells them, you don't know the power of God because you don't understand that the power comes, the power of God comes in the resurrection. Jesus says, you will be like angels, glorified beings. And the Sadducees denied angels too. And God, God's power will one day transform all creation, all things all things will be made new. The resurrection and redemption of all of creation will take place. And and because it's going to be something so different and so amazing, marriage will not even have a place in that. It's not even in view anymore. And then Jesus addresses their issue with scripture. And the beauty of this is that he goes to the Torah, what the Sadducees believed is the most authoritative portion of scriptures. And he points to Exodus 3, the story of the burning bush with Moses. And and it it's so sarcastic almost. Jesus says, don't you, don't you know the bush story? Almost like, don't you remember the ark? Or don't you know the story about the boy and the giant? It's just, it's laughable. And he says to them basically, if you understood the scriptures, you would, you would know in that moment when the Lord reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush and he says, I am the God of Isaac of Abraham, of Jacob, these men, though they had died a long time ago, I am the God of them. They are living. They're not dead. They are alive. So when God spoke to Moses at that point, he's saying, these men are alive, and I am the living God of these prophets of old, the living God who enacts his promises, enacts them to living people because he's the living God. He doesn't enact his promises and his covenant to non-existent dead people, but the living. Jesus doesn't even get into the weeds about this scenario with the wives and who she's going to be married to. It's not the point. The point is they miss that he is the God, the eternal God, the living God, and his promises and his word and his power do the same for all of his covenant people. It doesn't stop. It begins and it continues. James Edward writes this. He says, If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, as the Sadducees believe, then God's promises to them was limited to the duration of their earthly lives, which renders his promises finite and unfulfilled. God's words, however, cannot be bound. It is not an epitaph of human limitation, but a promise of divine potential. God would not pledge himself to the dead unless the dead were raised to life. Jesus' argument for the reality of the resurrection is based on the assumption that the call of God establishes a relationship with God, and once a relationship with God is established, it bears the promise of God and cannot be ended even by death. The relationship is the result of the promise and the power of God that conquers the last enemy, death itself. Jesus has been pushing in view that he is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he is going to rise. He will be the resurrected Christ. If Jesus fails to rise, then his mission of salvation is incomplete. Death, hell, grave, and sins are not vanquished. It is what, what Corinthians would point to us say we Christians would be, uh, would be pitied of all people if Jesus Did not rise. And Jesus has showed us in Mark already, he has the power of God to raise dead to life. And Jesus will rise. He will go and he will face his cross and he will not stay in the grave, but he will rise. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And the Sadducees have a truncated, limited view of God they think the grave is the end. And they're minimizing God's power and His promises and His word, and therefore they're denying the very resurrection that could bring them salvation, which would come through the resurrected Christ. So, for Christians, we understand death is a doorway into eternal life, into the life of God. And we know this because of the scriptures, the promises of God, and we know this because of the power of God being revealed. And Jesus. And so Jesus is before them, showing them that he is the fulfillment, the access of both of those realities. The completion of the scriptures, the fulfillment, and the power of God revealed through his cross and resurrection. Jesus, as John tells us, as he tells us, is the resurrection and the life. Right there before them. Blinded to it. The resurrection and the life is before them. And so we know that the promise is for all those who trust in the Lord by faith and the, it was in faith for all those, those in the Old Testament in the blood of those sacrificed animals that pointed to Christ for us. We look back and we consider the blood of Jesus, the cross and his resurrection and it is in that that we find future hope. So the scriptures, the The coordinates of the scriptures, the flight plan, should have led these guys to see and direct them to the Messiah, which was Jesus right before them. And they didn't understand that right before them was the fulfillment of those scriptures and the very power of God, That the key to interpret what that eternal life truly meant. But what good news, saints, that you and I, if you're trusting in Christ, you see Christ, you You see. He has opened up the scriptures for you to see, and he has given you his power so that you have hope. The promises of God, the words of his scriptures, and the power by the Spirit through the reigning Christ, if you possess that now, you possess that in part here on this earth, but you will possess it forever, and it doesn't end. But they don't embrace Jesus as Messiah. You might have picked up on sort of the bookends of Jesus' sort of condemning and pronouncement of them. You are wrong. You are quite wrong. They were wrong. They are wrong. And if we don't trust in Jesus, we don't place our hope in him, we will find ourselves with that same pronouncement. We are wrong. But we want to be right by placing our hope and looking into Christ himself. Now, I find myself laughing at a lot of these situations and as we can just even see Jesus' almost sarcasm with them. It's easy just to laugh at these guys, but I think there's a couple takeaways that, I, from this particular section that can be a challenge for us, that we don't get, we don't stray, we don't get quite wrong. There's traps for us. I think one of those traps that these these guys found themselves, they were very, very earthly-minded. They didn't see beyond what this earth would give them. And we can also become very comfortable in our particular American easy life. And it can be, it can be easy in entrapments to, to become earthly-orientated, and we can see our existence that is centered on things and our, our bodies, and these exist for just worldly ends versus something that God has in view that is eternal. Jesus aims for us to look towards bigger things and to remember future, eternal things. When we don't allow that to shape what we do, we, we, we become interpreters of, our, of what we want and what we think is right, if that's marriage or our bodies or what we're to do with babies. And Jesus is saying, look to me and remember something eternal, And remember that I need to set governance over those things. This is the way Paul would challenge even the Corinthian church in a very sensual culture to to not make sense of it their own, not to be earthly minded, but to keep perspective. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6 The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Notice how Paul points to the resurrection as a reminder that there's a future eternal responsibility, and that should determine what you do with your body now. Notice, it's not bodies that are throwaway or disposable, disposable just to use as we th- see fit or to interpret how we want to, but it has a future purpose. It has a purpose now and a future purpose that we were made for him. And Jesus, who was raised from the dead, will raise our own. We live now with that in mind as believers. A, a second thing I think we could look to and consider here is it is simple to is a simple danger for us to, to attach our our hold on the scriptures and the power of God at the same time. What I mean by this is that you've probably observed this, and I seem to have a, when you're in ministry, you can. The things you read, the, the observations you have eternally within ministry, but there, there can be people who champion theology with zeal and know all the scriptures well and champion them well, but yet there is a detachment from the transforming power that should come from those truths to change us, not only to know what was right, but for us to become more like the Lord himself. So knowing God's truth and be growing in the character of God is, the, is what God would desire for us to do. Convictional, knowing truth, but it should be with humility. Jesus prayed for his disciples, Father, sanctify them in truth. That truth should be doing something within us, changing us to become more like the Lord. And so let that be for us, church. We would champion truth. We would want to know the scriptures. We would be bold and convictional about them, but we want to be humble and allow those things to change us, to conform us to Jesus. We want power to become more like Him, not just to know the Scriptures. Amen. So we meet now another man who is very close to right. And Jesus directs him to ultimately what will make us right. So we meet this scribe in our next sort of section and passage. This is, the scribes would be a third group that would be a part of this ruling body that we met earlier called the Sanhedrin. And this scribe comes to him and asks him a question. Now if you just were like sort of reading Mark through quickly, we obviously feel broken up because we spend weeks and separately in these. But if you read them sort of back to back, it, it, it seems like, like whack-a-mole for Jesus. I mean, the way these guys are just running up and asking him questions. No, wrong, no, wrong. You're wrong, this is right, wrong. This is whack-a-mole. And then, and scribes now are up and he's got to bring definition. And the man come and a, comes and asks him a question. And his question is, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? <clears throat> and Jesus speaks to him in response to him. And there's a feel to this section of the text, though, that, that is a little bit different than the others. Though it feels like another whack-a-mole moment, he doesn't come to him with sort of the threatening arrogance that appears to be in some of the other interactions. The scribe comes and asks what seems to be a genuine question, and Jesus' response to him seems positive and kind. And, and the scribe, he would, he's also a theologian. His, they would be known for interpreting experts, interpretings of law. And he, he wants to understand the law and how to understand the scriptures. And so he asks them that question of what commandment is most important of all. And this is a, this is a big question. It's not a unique one. The teachers of the law and those in this time, they would, they would try to work through and come up with a, a synthesized, boiled down nutshell of what, what does all of those scriptures teach? What do all of the Torah teach? There are probably around 613 commandments as they would dial in, 365 were prohibitions, 248 were positive commands, some were more heavy and serious. some were more lighter ones. But if you wanted to be a faithful, right Jew, you would, you would want to know what is most important. You want to be right with Yahweh, with God. So he's put on the spot. And it seems more of a serious question than just what do you do with Caesar's taxes. This This question could be one of life and death. I mean, one—if you're going to summarize God's law and you need to obey this law, this commandment, one degree off this path could end you up in under God's judgment. So you better answer correctly. So Jesus is under pressure, but he is—he is the sovereign Son of God. He was in the beginning. He was in the beginning, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so a question about what is the most important commandment, Jesus is the one to be able to answer that. What is the most important? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength and the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there was no other commandment greater than these now Jesus is not coming up with this out of nowhere he is he is quoting an old testament passage it's in a couple places but Deuteronomy 6 would be one verses 4 through 5 would be one that he would point to and For a Jew, this would be called the Shema. It would be recited by a godly, God-fearing Jew, uh, morning and evening. A Repetition of this truth should give shape to all thought and to all living and behavior, all actions. And it begins with acknowledging that the Lord, the, the Lord is one. He is the singular one true reigning God who's deserving of obedience and worship and trust. Unlike the pagans, gods, and the multiplicity of gods, he is the one true God. And God's people live all their lives for him as loving him, flowing from the heart, and this love is all-encompassing soul, mind, strength, will, emotions, behaviors. And Jesus adds a second piece to what would... A Jew would know this Shema, a a second part to the great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this isn't out of nowhere. This is from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. If you want to dig into who is your neighbor, we won't answer that question this morning, but you could go to Luke chapter 10. Jesus gets asked that question, and it's a powerful story. And revealing truth about our neighbor is the one that we can often avoid. The one that's despised is the one that we should pursue and love. So these would be two commands that a scribe or Jew would know. But the uniqueness of this is Jesus unites these two commandments under one. He links them as one expression of God's will. This is one command displaying itself, working itself out in two directions, vertically towards God and horizontally towards other. There is no other greater commandment than these, love God, love your neighbor. It's all foundationally flowing from love, loving him, loving others. We can can complicate it. We can complicate it. This is it. Love God, love one another. And the scribe replies to Jesus, "You are right. That should this is like a laughable moment too. Jesus, you're right. Well, of course Jesus is right. Jesus is right. And then the scribe basically repeats what Jesus just said, but he adds this little bit: loving God, loving neighbor is better than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, a scribe who would know the Scriptures, he, this scribe, seems to have insight that there is something more to a relationship to God than through just ritual. He realized there could be a heartless response. Nothing nothing flowing from here in living for God. But it must be a yielded, trusting heart towards God. Maybe he had in view... Hosea's prophecy, Hosea 6, 6, for I desire steadfast love or mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The scribe is affirming, and Jesus is there affirming and clarifying it, it simply is not religious motions. It is not just religious activities heartless soulless mindless detachment and ritual it, it is flowing from within our hearts it is not checking boxes it is not just being there on a sunday attendance the, the lord the lord sees our hearts and his his commandments come or come to people with hearts that are loving him and worshiping him and following him and trusting him. Jesus says, you are wise. He, see, or he, says, he answered wisely and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What is interesting is Jesus commends him, but he is in a way judging him in this moment. The scribe wasn't the one who was judging Jesus by affirming that he is right. Jesus stands as the one who rules and tells the scribe where he stands in relationship to the kingdom of God, not Jesus in relationship to the kingdom of God. And, and after that, nobody dared ask Jesus another question. See, see where we've been now. The Sadducees were quite wrong. Jesus is right, right? quite right actually and the scribe is the scribe is kind of right he he's not far he's close but he's not right he's close but only only close jesus told him you you were close You, you were not far from the kingdom of god but he's not he's not in the kingdom of god does does he get in we oh we don't know that maybe he does but we can, ask, we can ask that question, how does one get in? What have we heard already in the Gospel of Mark? The, the promise or details around the kingdom of God. Well, well, Mark tells us, Jesus shows us that the answer is, is right in front of him. I mean, literally, the answer is, is right in front of the scribe. It is the fulfillment of this great commandment and the power to get into the kingdom. Jesus drew our attention to that very, the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is near. At hand, repent and believe in my good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. The scribe is near. The, the king is at hand, is, is not far from him, literally four or five feet away, how will he get in, get in? He must trust on Jesus as Messiah. He must put his faith on Jesus as Messiah. His knowledge of those scriptures would not be enough. He must look at Jesus, and he must repent of his sins and believe the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing in his life, where he's about to head in his suffering and death, and what will be achieved in the fulfillment and promise of his resurrection, the ransom life that Jesus would provide. The Sadducees don't understand the Scriptures nor the power of God. The scribe seems to have insight into the Scriptures, what he needs More, He needs the power of God. He needs a Savior, and that Savior is right there. The fulfillment of that passage is what he needs, and he must place his faith upon that Savior. We must place our faith upon that Savior. Our knowing and knowledge of Scriptures, being in a church environment, will not save us. The repetition through Mark has been The many groups that are just so near, close to Jesus, but they're not in the kingdom. They just just can't see, just can't put their faith in him. Edwards notes, one draws near to the kingdom of God, not by proper theology, but by drawing near to Jesus. That scribe just needs to draw near to Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, as the promised one. We can surround ourselves by religious and church stuff and activities. We can, have, we can have these verses memorized. Yet not believe. Yet not put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Teens, I want to encourage you. If you're in here, teenagers, if you're listening to me, the the danger, the the tra- entrapping thing is that you are able to hear these things over and over again. It's, it's like you're in that plane, you got the instrument panel all around you and you, could, you, know, you know it. Jesus is near, he's not far, but you have to put your faith and trust in him. You have to place your trust in him. And this is the good news. By God's grace, by God's kindness, he's allowed you to be, since, some of you, since you were born, near Jesus. Not far from Jesus. Hearing the gospel over and over again, Jesus is right there. Put your trust in him. Place your faith in him. That doesn't just go for teenagers. That's for, for all of us here. And this is the radical thing about this greatest and most holy commandment. it leaves us all falling short of this. Not one of us has loved God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourself. None of us. The shocking reality is that we cannot fulfill this. Commandments. We're told if you break one of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking them all. And therefore we would incur God's just wrath. And yet the good news, though we cannot attain perfection of loving him heart, soul, mind, and strength to get into his kingdom, there is entrance. There is entrance in the good news of Jesus Christ because we have a Savior We have a Savior who has perfectly fulfilled this command of loving Father in all of its perfection with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and perfectly loved his neighbor by laying his life down, even for his enemies, as a ransom for many, as a sacrifice to atone for sinners who break and have broken this command. That is good news. That is good news for us. That is good news for us, and there is forgiveness today. And there's forgiveness tomorrow, and there's forgiveness the next day when we fail to do that. Jesus is the key interpreter of all what is right, and he is the one who makes us right. So again, that question for us, do you, on that day, today, do you you want to be left quite wrong, or do you want to be left quite right As you leave these doors, you could be made right by faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And the powerful reality is that once we do, we have new hearts. We are filled with his power, the Holy Spirit. We are given his word so we can understand how to then love him and follow him as disciples with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we should. Because when we keep his commands, it shows us that we do love Christ. First John tells us that and also proves that we also love God by the way that we love one another. And so we can love our brothers and sisters and so prove that we love God and that God's love is in us. This is why Galatians 5 tells us that the whole law is fulfilled in loving our neighbor and true faith is faith working itself out in love. And so we can look at this commandment and it can, it can be a, a course corrector for us. Where, where, where do we need the Lord's help today to love neighbor and love God, heart, mind, soul, and strength? And, and Jesus makes it right. He, he answers that question and he gives us cleansed hearts to be able to do it. He renews our mind so that our thinking can be one that loves Him. He transforms our desires and our wills so that we can live under the power and strength that comes from Him so that we can follow and love Him. And we can fulfill this commandment. We can love Him and we can love others. And that is good news. So let's look to Christ today. Let's look to the one who's right before us today. Let's allow our hearts to be filled with joy, knowing that, that we're not far. <laughs> we're not far, but we are in his kingdom, and we have a Savior who's right there with us, leading us, guiding us, strengthening us to live, live out these, this commandment together. Join me as we pray. Jesus you are you are the the right interpreter of our world. We we can't understand you God without you Jesus coming and making your making God known to us. And we cannot access God without you Jesus making a way to you and and God without salvation and your work of your spirit in us we can't understand your word and and, and Lord, we, we don't have answers to all things and everything in our life of why things happen or what we should do. But Lord, the things that are most important, the things that are most vital, the things that we need to, to make us most right, to give us the, the, the direction we most need, Jesus, you are the answer to that. And so thank you for making yourself known to us. Thank you for kindly and gently and lovingly drawing near to us and, and revealing yourself to us that we could see, that we could understand your scriptures, we could understand your power, and that, could, and that changes us. So Lord Jesus, would you make in us, by your Spirit, um, Lord, give us mind and heart and strength and wills to, to, to love you more faithfully as a church and to move towards one another in that love, God. There's a world outside these doors that that need that as well, God, and they they need to understand the love of God, and they will see and know we are, are yours by our love for one another. So just keep doing your good work in us, growing us in our love for you, growing us in our love for one another. And so prove that we are your disciples, Jesus. And give hope to a world that needs to know that love. Amen.